Hey everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, The Last Nighters, and we are part of the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas on your direction. Check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. We're going to be talking about My Cousin Vinny with Pat McFarlane of the Liberty Weekly Podcast. This is episode 62 of the show. You can find the show notes more at lastnighters.com slash 62. How you doing, Robert? Lovely, sir. Thank you for having me on once again. Glad to be back on another episode. I watched this movie and it was... Like taking a trip back in time, back to when they made movies this way, that they don't make movies like this anymore. Oh, I'm going to have things to say about that. Oh, really? Oh, oh, really, fool. Oh, indeed. Uh, I will spoil my review a little bit here and just say that this movie holds up pretty well. I, I think this was a movie in thirds. The first two thirds of it were shit garbage, and the last third was fantastic. It, uh, the movie all turns around as soon as the examination, the cross-examination starts. Oh, yeah, but you're planting the seeds the whole way. Yeah, but that's just boring and garbage. And there's like all these um, like Pratt Falls and like, oh, no, he can't get any sleep because he's in Hickville. And oh, that was just dumb. All right, but once he starts talking to people on the stand, it's, uh, the movie turns on. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's game over. All right. Well, hey, we've got a guest. It's Pat McFarlane of Liberty Weekly Podcast. He's been on the show a couple of times before, most recently for Liar Liar. Pat, tell everyone what you do, where you're from, how they find your stuff. And then we'll get into the Google description and start uh, talking about this flick. Hey, guys. Glad to be back. Um, really good friends with you guys. It's been a long time, I guess, two years now that we've been doing this. Um, so we also do the Libertarian Union and all that kind of stuff. But it's been great to appear on your guys' show with regularity uh, because we do go way back. I am Patrick McFarlane of the Liberty Weekly podcast. You can find my work at libertyweekly.net. Um, I do Rothbardian, Libertarian, ANCAP, Voluntarist legal theory. Um, I am a practicing attorney now in Western Wisconsin. Um, when I started my show, I was just a young uh, chipper, perky law student in my second year. And um, I had just become a libertarian ANCAP. I accepted the ways of Rothbard and accepted the non-aggression principle to its logical conclusion. And then throughout law school, I was frankly kind of bored with the classes. And so I decided to, I don't know, try and contribute in some way to this liberty movement that we have going on here. So, all right, well, let's get into that Google description. Then. All right, so My Cousin Vinny came out in 1992. Comedy of Manners, trial drama, one hour, 59 minutes, 7.6 on the IMDb, 85% Rotten Tomatoes, 4.7 out of 5 on iTunes, and 92% of Google users like it. The description is New York lawyer Vinny has never won a case. When his teenage cousin, the karate kid, Bill, and his friend Stan are accused of murder in backwater Alabama town, it's up to the nervous Vinny to save him from jail, even though he's only ever tried personal injury cases before, and none of them successfully came out March 13, 1992. Director is Jonathan Lynn. Won a couple of Academy Awards, Best Actress in a Supporting Role, MTV Movie Award for Best Breakthrough Performance, and uh, it's a 90s classic, I think. So, Robert, your thoughts on the description? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I'd characterize Vinny as a nervous guy. I mean, he's definitely a you know out-of-town lawyer showing up, like kind of a bit of a culture clash. That's classic movie trope, fish out of water style. These two big city types come into this Hickville and just a bit of a culture clash. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, this is a movie out of time. The, I don't think this movie, this movie plays on a lot of old timey tropes. It just seemed like I was going back in time watching this film because the dialogue was real dumb. It made like Karate Kid out to be really, really stupid. So a lot of the, the dialogue happens, it's written in a way at the expense of the audience, like for a joke. So there are two times specifically when this happens and the movie kind of evens out after that, but two specific times it really stood out was the first time when the, the two, the pair of boys are arrested. And then the next time when 
uh, Karate Kid is asleep in the jail cell and Vinny comes in and he has a conversation with the other boy, Stan. And, the, and Stan and Stan thinks he's there to rape him and Vinny's there like he's going to talk to him about the the case. But the dialogue is written in such an ambiguous way in which no human beings would actually speak in order to play up this comedic dialogue. And Karate Kid has to pretend to be asleep on the bunk because as soon as he wakes up, he instantly recognizes, oh, it's my cousin Vinny. Ha ah, ha, you're here to try our case. Completely just, you know, destroying the, the comedy. But it's it just makes the characters out to be really, really dumb. And uh, I'm glad that's kind of a trope that died. So that's, that's my take on that. Yeah, this- the other time it happens is when they're arrested. And it's really, really bad. Because they never ask the question, hey, why am I being arrested? They just assume it's for this like, can of tuna that they took. Right, because you just got pulled over by a cop with a shotgun and dragged into cop town and everybody's angry with you because of a can of tuna. Yeah, I, I, good call, guys. Well, they, they do set that up. They foreshadow that in the very opening scene where they're talking about how the laws in Alabama are medieval and they, yeah, they do overboard on any little thing. And so it becomes believable based on that dropped uh, you know, element. Early. If you accept that. Right. But it's also a comedy movie. I mean, they got a it's a script and they're trying to play it funny. So, you know, we can't wait a minute. minute. This movie was funny. (laughs) What 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 was funny in this movie, Daniel, when he was woken up by the the oinking pigs or the the train or the whistle, which which or the no or the or the owl? Yeah, yeah, the owl was funny. I like all the times he was woken up. I I don't know. Or when he slipped and fell in the mud. Maybe it was when he slipped and fell in the mud when he was trying to get his car out of the mud. Was that was that the funny part? That was a funny part too, yes. This whole okay. movie is comedy gold. Okay. All right. Patrick, your take on the Google description and uh, anything that Robert has said thus far. I don't know. I, I think at this point in time, Robert has a trope for hating almost every film that you do. So I really thought that Robert yes. would enjoy this film. I did. So you I, like just don't, I just don't love it unconditionally. My love is not unconditional, oh. Patrick. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, there, there are some quibbles that I have with this film. Um, I think it makes sense, uh, even though this is not... So the Google description kind of made it sound like um, this is his not his very first case because he's lost a bunch of cases in the past, but he's trying this case, and I don't know... It, it didn't make sense in the Google description that this would be his first case. Not really a big deal, but um, yeah. Um, I don't know if you... I've never heard of anyone having six tries at the bar exam and not passing. Most people give up after three or four. Because you have to like pay money each time, and it's only every six months, right? Yeah, and it's a few hundred dollars. So, yeah, so that's three years out of his life trying to pass the bar. Right, at least. Yeah, they're called doctors. No, literally. And I remember last year, Pat, when you were uh, studying for the bar, you took a little hiatus from your show and, and we stepped in and helped out with a summer special talking about Wild Wild Country, the Netflix series. And you still have that up on your site, right? It's uh, libertyweekly.net slash WWC. Is that correct? Yes, I do. That is correct. Yeah. All right. That was a lot of fun. So I just wanted to throw that out there. If, if you guys aren't bored with us already, there's six more hours of content of us talking about uh, a, a pretty interesting Netflix series. So. Yeah, we we had um, guests in. We had a bunch of guests like Sherry Voluntary and the Peaceful Treason podcast. And were there some other guests, too, that we did for that show? Or Yeah, Trey from the Subversion webcast. He was yeah. on. Okay. Speaking yeah. of the owl, um, he actually had an owl uh, swoop down and catch a vole through the snow. And he caught it on video and he posted it to Facebook the other day. And my girls saw it and they were like, oh, man, that's so cool. And uh, there's an owl in uh, my cousin Vinny. So, you know, it's tying everything together here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Layers here. The world is a circle. Excellent. So let's talk about the beginning of the film. Yeah, I want to talk so about the, the two boys. Yeah, let's talk about the beginning, Daniel. You no, want to talk about it? 
I want to go before you're going to go, though. Here. Oh, okay. You you set me up, and I'll knock it down. All right. So the very, very open, they're in this car speeding down the highway, and they pass a vehicle in a no-passing zone, blind rise. They can't see. They could have killed somebody head-on collision, and it totally would have been their fault. Movie's over. They're guilty. They actually did murder somebody through negligence. A wanton disregard for human life, Daniel. Yes. See, some of the rules of the road are nonsense, but some of them are actually common sense. Yeah, I think in a private road situation, there would be a solid line, dotted line scenario. It could be the best possible way to do it. You don't know. Yeah, you got to try different things out. But in this scenario, and it's pretty clear that they can't see what's over that rise. And they're speeding past this, uh, was it like a semi-truck or something like that? Anyway, it stood out to me because I'm like, well, they just committed like a, it's not a crime per se, there's no victim at that point. But they certainly did put others at undue risk. Or they're certainly taking a, a big risk. Yeah, for sure. All right. Unnecessary. Unnecessary risk. Anyway, go go where you were going to go, because I'm pretty sure you weren't going to say that. No, I wasn't. Although I did notice that at the time. So the tuna can. So he's got the dumb tuna can. And yes, they talked about it being like, we're down south in the super archaic, whatever, medieval kind of law that they have down in Alabama for some reason. I think this is just like Hollywood elites thinking that that's what the rest of the country thinks. Who knows? But... So he's got this tuna can in his pocket. And yes, there's a throwaway line of dialogue, which kind of like makes the rest of it okay. But it's really, really stupid still. I don't care. The, um, by the cop, like after checking out the restaurant, or I mean, sorry, the, the little convenience store, he only realizes that he's got this tuna can in his pocket like minutes later, right? They're way on down the road. I can't imagine he thinks that anybody actually saw him put the tuna can in his pocket. And then what does he really think? What is going through his head? As the cop is pulling him over. Wow, they put out an APB for a tuna can and they cop got there real quick. And oh my God, get after him. They got a tuna can. Get out of there. They call like Boss Hog on the CLCB or whatever. I mean, what? So this leads to uh, the cop pulling him over. And I guess I should explain if you haven't watched the movie, um, some other people come in and shoot and kill the clerk right afterwards. Spoiler. Yeah, spoiler. Spoilers for this whole movie. That's what happens. That's the whole plot of this film is they're on trial. That's why it's called My Cousin Vinny. He's a lawyer. We're talking about it. Anyway, so the cop pulls him over and immediately aims a shotgun at him at a significant distance. I don't know how effective that shotgun would be at that range. However, I do appreciate that it's at least an honest traffic stop. All traffic stops are threats of murder, but at least this one is an honest one because he's clearly pointing a gun at the guy just immediately. So I appreciated that. Have I told you that I had guns pointed at me? I don't remember. All right, so I was returning a uh, video to Blockbuster, so that tells you how how uh, ancient this history is here. And apparently somebody in the neighborhood of that area uh, was a victim of a house break-in, and I apparently met the uh, description of said person who did the break-in. So I'm returning this movie to Blockbuster, and I... I'm about to get out of the car and I look around and there's like eight cops and six cop cars and guns are pointed at me about this, uh, apparently this break in. And I thought it was because I had rented a bad movie, like, you know, not not like a dirty movie, but like a poorly rated movie that was like a crime to watch. So you're basically Karate Kid in this movie. I'm Karate Kid in this movie and I didn't steal this movie. I was returning it. Okay, I could see why you're defending Karate Kid in this movie. Because he never asks anybody why he was arrested. No, he assumes it's for the tuna. And so that's that's how they get the whole, you know, like the whole conversation, the confession, because they think right. they're talking about something else. And yeah, then they, they duplicate it in the uh, prison rape kind of thing. And this is another reason why you should never speak to a cop. Because dumbass Karate Kid just repeats that he shot the clerk. I shot the clerk? Yeah, you shot the clerk. I shot the clerk? I shot the sheriff. And 
He should have had old Patty McFarlane there talking for him, not incriminating his client. Well, dude has to know that um, his Miranda rights, and I believe at this time, Miranda, what Miranda, I knew I just looked at it. Miranda was an earlier case. So Miranda was decided before 1991 or whatever. So Miranda states that if you're in custodial interrogation, you have a right to remain silent. This is pretty well known by a lot of people, at least in in terms of film and Law and Order SVU and Law and Order, which I don't enjoy watching. Um, But a really good criminal defense attorney that I know says that he likes watching it because they actually get things somewhat right. Um, They they actually do address uh, this uh, early in the interrogation. The sheriff says to LaRusso, you you do waive your rights at this point. And he says yes. Oh, okay, Yeah. So I, I had forgotten about that. So he... So he did waive his rights. What an idiot. Um, that's a bit one of the biggest things. I mean, people, you'd be surprised. As part of my uh, Constitutional Crim Pro class, we watched a lot of Cops and The First 48, which is a really good show. And you'd be surprised by the amount of people that openly give consent to the police to search their car. They openly give consent to police to enter their apartment. And because these brain-damaged people uh, think that, oh, well, if you have nothing to hide, then you know, you must be innocent. So if you display to police that you have nothing to hide, then they're going to treat you as being innocent. Well, no, they're they're not going to trust you. They're going to go through your possessions and find your meth pipe. That's just what's going to happen. So don't talk to police. Don't give them any leeway in that sense. I mean, ask for your lawyer and uh, exercise your Fifth Amendment right. It's not hard. Yeah, I think a lot of people go with the um, the authority. Like, and, and this is maybe a subconscious thing. Like they're wearing a uniform and, and they're told that the police are the authority. I mean, you could get people to agree to something just by having a clipboard and a lab coat. Like they do, they do that in the Milgram experiment. Um, right. You know, there's just that air of authority. And then more and more people will agree to do something, even if it's against what they would normally have chosen to do, should uh, it not have been somebody who was in a position of authority or an apparent a position of authority. And so I think that might play into why people are offering this consent freely. I think some people, too, they feel like they don't want to give the police officers a hard time because they do know that these cops have, you know, when when you're dealing in a face to face interaction, you can see that the police are just people, too. Um, that's not to defend them in any sense, of course not. But you on some level, you want to appear like you're a nice person and you want to be agreeable and cooperative. Um, and they act like your friend, though, but they they're do. there to do a job. Right. They are. Yeah. And their job is to find guilty parties. And you could easily be one of those guilty parties. Because you really want to believe that, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell I'm gonna break it to you guys in the audience is that as libertarians, we want to believe that everyone is on some level we're idealists and we really want to believe that everyone is innocent and that in the eyes of eyes of the state, there's so not in the eyes of the state, but in the in libertarian terms there, it's the individual versus the state. But in reality, what I've seen most often is that I'm representing people who are guilty as sin of actual NAP violations here. And they are involved with drugs, yes, and maybe their involvement with drugs and the state's persecution of drugs has caused their criminality in some way. But I'm telling you from a public defender standpoint that most of the people that I represent are guilty people, and um, it's hard to represent them because they are just welfare rats or they are people who have actually stolen things from people. Yes, they've been convicted of victimless crimes like drugs in some senses, in some in some charges, but a lot of it is actual NAP violation crimes. And that's what makes it so difficult because you get in situations 
with you know prosecutors like that they they're so vehemently against you know people who they see as criminals and this criminal element and that criminal element exists but on some level it's justified and i know we're we're really straying from the film here but this is the reality are you insulting the integrity of this show patrick i i don't know <laughs> i hope uh, you're gonna this show has integrity you're gonna hold me in contempt here i'm gonna hold you in contempt on this and and when the judge did that i, I don't I think any that- of us are dressed properly courtroom no that's true that's dead dead on balls accurate there robert should i get my suits out i mean i i look pretty freaking dapper if i do say hey, so. hey, hey patty what did you think of the uh, judge in this film did, was he being representative of what you think judges are like with the whole you must dress this way and address me in this way and blah 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 yes um okay so <clears throat> this is a topic i really wanted to get to too and i'm i'm sorry for my side here but um So there's a real dichotomy going on between rural counties and especially Alabama. And let me tell you that I found it amusing the the stress that the Alabama courts in this film place upon procedure because there are hallmark and landmark um, Supreme Court cases about civil rights abuses that have happened in Alabama and the Deep South states, especially during the civil rights era against criminal defendants who have not been given proper due process. Um, and in fact, in my my constitutional crim pro class, my professor who claimed to be a civil libertarian, I'm using quotes for you listening to the audio, really hard here, very much quotes. And I hate civil libertarians, sorry, uh, because they separate civil liberties from economic liberties when you in fact cannot do that. Um, but he, so he was saying, this is why we need an overarching federal government and a strong Supreme Court that will enforce the 14th amendments and impose it upon the states to make sure that we follow due process in these rural counties, especially Alabama, because those fucking racists are there and X, Y, Z. Well, we have those small, very unique cases. And I remember tweeting and Facebooking Tom Woods at the time I was going through this class because I was like, man, how could you be for decentralization? when all these civil rights abuses are happening. And this is what my concrim pro professor is saying and, and all this stuff. And come to find out it's something Tom Woods has talked about many, 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 many times on his show. But so this is real. I thought it was interesting. This judge really talks about the, the problem of enforcing civil rights and the 14th Amendment and all this stuff. We follow things strictly by the book here. Uh, realities is that each county really does their own thing by themselves. The culture is created by the judge that's in the county and however they want to do it. And it can be hard as an attorney when you're bouncing from, from county to county because each county kind of wants to do their own thing in some ways. Um, some are known for being by the book and some are known for being a little more loosey-goosey. Um, but in the Deep South, maybe it was pretty self-conscious in this film of trying to portray the fact that we do things by the book here and we're going to give due process to our the accused. That being said, the judge I really, really like because he also played in Pet Cemetery and he was Judd Crandall. And he was, uh, uh, if you watch South Park, there's the episode where Judd Crandall's in it and he's like, uh, not down that road, you know, the... Um, the, the soil of a man's heart is Stonio, Lewis. So I really liked him in this film. Okay, so how realistic is it that a guy gets thrown in jail for not wearing the right clothing? It's pretty, I mean, relatively, yeah. There, Yes, so it, it does happen if you do not show the court the respect that maybe the judge um, 
requests. A few funny stories. I had a, I'll make this quick, but I had a domestic abuse restraining order hearing that I did. And the petitioner was, I was on the side of the respondent, the guy who was accused of beating or holding this woman down in taking their child from her. Um, I was representing the guy, but the petitioner in this showed up wearing a t-shirt with an open back and she had a tattoo. And this was a white t-shirt that said sinful on it or like sinner or something like that. And um, the restraining order she was seeking was granted in this case. But your courtroom attire really does kind of play into things. And I, I was I was shocked that the restraining order was granted and that anyone could find her as being credible when she went on the witness stand and wore a T-shirt that said sinner on it. Um, well, it's different, though, for the accused to wear whatever. Yeah. But for the lawyer to be thrown in jail for contempt for failure to wear a suit and tie. Oh, yeah. No, it happens. I mean, maybe not particularly for that reason, because there are eccentric lawyers out there that will wear out outlandish costumes. For real, there's one in a city I practice in here. Um, but some, I mean, it depends on the judge, and they have that discretion and power. So if you piss a judge off, and if you speak out of turn, um, they'll do that. And that happened in Milwaukee County just this last I don't know, there's a story maybe I could find and link in the show notes page about a judge getting mad at a public defender for advocating for their client and speaking out of turn or refusing to do things and holding that lawyer in contempt. It does happen. So that was accurate. Yeah. And, and in this, it wasn't the first time that he had asked him not to wear like a leather jacket and, and steel toed cowboy boots. It was like the. No, it was. It was the first time. He, he His first appearance, he goes, What are you wearing? This is ridiculous. Never come to my courtroom again unless you're wearing something nice and then the next time he doesn't and he sends him to jail yeah but the first time is because <clears throat> so now we're, we're kind of getting into the procedure of this um the whole movie and the procedure itself actually followed the book so in this movie book. you're getting or oh, by the book. Okay. yeah but um in this movie you're really getting double sides because a lot of it is ridiculously not rooted in fact but other parts are are pretty accurate so there's a strict criminal procedure that happens um the first you have your initial appearance in which case you are served the summons and complaint or the complaint in this case um in a criminal file and it outlines the the counts the laws that you are alleged to have broken it alleges the penalties and the factual basis and the elements that the state has to prove in order to convict you of it. But you get the point. So now, that, a lot of this, yeah. a lot of this film is is Vinny kind of learning the ropes about how to try a case because he's never really done anything like this before. And at one point, he concocts this kind of scheme to go hunting with the other prosecutor to try and get his notes on the case or get all the information he has because he has no idea that like discovery is a thing and he has to. And actually, Marissa Tomei has to inform him that, yeah, if you even knew the slightest bit about law, you would know that. So how realistic is it that he doesn't know that there's discovery and sharing and discovery information is a thing? Yeah, I mean, that is something. Okay, so there's a point at which he she has bailed him out um, from being in contempt. And let me tell you, there's a difference between being in jail and being in prison, right? If you're in contempt, there is a county jail in every single county. People go to jail when they're serving sentences that are less than a year. And people go to prison when they're serving sentences longer than a year. And it seems that every time that we cut to 
a different scene. The the accused are in prison in that they are going to prison. Well, that's not the case at all. If you are waiting trial or anything like that, you go to jail. If you're in contempt of court, you go to jail. Um, but when she's picking it up, picking him up from jail, they're t- he's saying, yeah, we didn't learn about procedure in law school. We only learned about, you know, uh, precedent or case law or the theory of certain legal doctrines. That's pretty true. However, you do learn some procedure, some, not enough to maybe have a functional knowledge where you could go into court and actually be a good attorney. But I mean, that's what you get from interning at different public defender offices or clerking for a different firm. Um, But yeah, in terms of actual procedure, you don't learn that much, but you learn enough to know that you have to make a discovery demand. All right. I have a few things to interject. Number one, they address why they're not in jail, and it's because of uh, budget cuts and and the the jails like condemned or something. So they have to use the prison instead. Okay, yeah. That's part of the uh, part of the script. Um, The other thing was... um, we were talking about how Vinny was dressed and, and later on in the film, his dress or his uh, dress clothes get covered in mud because, you know, we get that um, that kernel of hilarious comedy scene, the positronic uh, axle action. Right. The only the one wheel spinning. So that's a foreshadow. But he has to go and get this kind of ridiculous suit. The pimp that, suit. Yeah, the pimp suit that um, reminds me of, you know, when Jordan Peterson was going around doing his his lecture talks, like doing a U.S. tour. And then he would do he would post for photographs with people who paid the VIP package. Um, a couple of people I know got the picture with him and he's wearing a suit just like that. In <laughs> Peterson is or your friend is Peterson. Nice. You know, yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad that you did this close up ob- observing of the film that I couldn't catch. So that's good. I like I said, I do know a lot of lawyers. There are eccentric lawyers around, especially ones that have been around for a while that wear ridiculous outfits and costumes to court. And people just know like, oh, yeah, that's so and so he's he's kind of weird. Right. Um, Once you get to a certain level, you just don't care anymore. Uh, But in terms of getting your suit dirty, let me tell you, this whole winter, I've been dealing with the excessive amount of snowfall in this area. And my all my like my pants have been getting my suit pants have been getting dirty on all the salt and stuff as I rub up against my vehicle. And I hate that, man. So that's real in some in some level. Oh, poor Patrick. I know. So you really felt for Vinny and his plight in this movie? I I did actually in some ways because I had some flashbacks to when they're in the hotel room and Vinny is on the bed and his wife is or his girlfriend or not even fiance is is saying, oh, it's your first big case, you know, and um, my wife has been there with me every step of the way. And I, I haven't been as much of a dick to my wife as Vinny is to his girlfriend or wife in this in this movie but um i don't know i i did identify in that sense like it it really is overwhelming in some ways and you feel inadequate but you just try and do the best job you can and you realize that this is the way the legal profession is is that um while there is procedure there is human error and you just try and do your best and that's why we have the appellate court system and um more often than not you do a good job though um because you care and because there's that um I don't know. There's the weight of it is on your shoulders. You just try and cope in the way that you can. Um, But I, if, if we, if we can, I'd like to address the procedure a bit more of how a criminal case will go in the trial. I don't know if we're going to have time during the, uh, the episode proper here because we're already at pretty, we're, we're pretty long in the tooth here. I know I've been rambling. I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) 
Well, maybe we'll save that for the Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which is our post-show content. We can get more into the procedure, and that will be an enticement and inducement for people to give us some Patreon money over at lastnighters.com slash Patreon, if, if I may be so bold. Uh, speaking of the fiance, Marissa Tomei's performance, I thought was pretty good. But there was a, a moment where she was talking about the hunting trip and how, oh, you're going to go shoot a deer, a fuzzy, wuzzy little nice little animal prancing through the forest. And she catered to, you know, the emotion of that and how cute the animal would be. But it uh, reminded me a lot of, there's a Rothbard lecture on conservation. And he's talking about how we get a lot of the environmentalist policy from New York intellectuals who've never been out in the forest and never have seen a deer, but they're the ones making these decisions for what needs to be protected or whatever. It's their aesthetics that they want to uh, impose on everyone else, but not at their own expense. Like if they wanted to go out and buy the tundra and save the the uh, caribou, they could go out and buy it, but they're not willing to do that. They're, they want to force it through law and through extortion to get those things uh, put into, into motion to please their aesthetic that is something that they're never going to go see and never going to be uh, a party to. So just want to throw that in there because... Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of that is, you know, intellectuals virtue signaling about how much they care about things and have causes because they're bored, I suppose. And some people actually do really care, of course, about the animals and whatnot. But yeah, it's always at the expense of the others. It reminds me of... Um, I've seen a Dumb and Dumber where they go and they're talking about, I think, the owls. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. They yeah. have a benefit for the owls. Nice pair of hooters. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a whole bunch of rich Aspenites talking about how much they need to, the government to save the owls or something. Yeah, I think they played that up a, a fair amount in Arrested Development. Um, the sister, she was always doing those uh, virtue signally like causes and whatever, but she didn't really care about them at all. She's just doing them for her social status. Yeah, for sure. My That's my wife's favorite show is arrested development so she'll love you for that um you'd be surprised in my grits there pat in your grits i'll make her listen to this whole episode just for that five second snippet um you'd be surprised though in my neck of the woods how important being a hunter is to my clientele i know this community you know being a part of the community actually is a large part of practicing law I know this community and I know that it's important to people around here to be a hunter. And I, you know, I am a hunter. I've hunted um, from being a young child all up until the present day, but it is very important. Some people won't trust you unless you can connect with them on that level. And so, you know, I, I'm sure Alabama is kind of the same, but that is a very important part of being a small town practitioner. And one of the big thing themes in this in this uh, film is the difference between the small town legal practice and the big city legal practice. And I think that people in small towns, depending on the culture of the judge in the county, the lawyers too can really compete and throw down with lawyers from the big cities, even though um, they tend to be a bit more specialized. But I, I'm going to actually, I'm going to implore you guys to make this episode a bit longer because I have so much more to say. If I haven't been ranting incoherently too much. No, I, I think there's a lot of good things to be said. Not to go off too far on the, the hunter tangent, but hunters actually provide a very excellent service. In addition to feeding their families with the food, they also thin out you know, the weakest, a lot of times they um, can help control the populations when, right. you know, uh, humans taking up a lot of, uh, space, we tend to uh, kill a lot of the ape, alpha, you know, apex predators, which allows the uh, prey animals to overpopulate and can cause a lot of problems for property damage. I mean, I, I don't know if you've driven out in the rural areas, but hitting deer is a very real risk you take when you drive out in a lot of the rural areas. 
Well, think about it this way. I mean, what is the incentive of hunters? Is it to completely depopulate an area of a certain pre prey? Right. They don't want that. No, of course not. I mean, the the best. I think the best con the best conservationists out west are people like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. I mean, they look after elk and encourage the elk herd to populate because they have an incentive to make sure that the elk are still there ten years from now, so they can hunt them. I yeah, mean, they're it, the ones that care, right? The they, they raise the most money, frankly, too. Yeah. And they ensure that the, the fittest survive. I mean, if you're going to be able to kill off, you know, the weak and the sick, you know, the, the, the strongest, the smartest bucks are going to live out and repopulate anyway, yeah. not to go too far off on the hunting. Daniel, yeah. let's, let's just circle us back around to the movie. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to take us on a little tour of Africa on the way. Um, I think that there was a story about, was it the black rhino that uh, was on the verge of extinction? And then they were private efforts that basically treated them as private property. They privatized the conservation and they made a comeback. And I think there's a story about that, that I'll try to find the link to. Um, but it's a pretty, um, pretty good example of how environmentalist causes are better served by respecting property rights and allowing additional freedom versus restriction. And so right. that, and the, the extermination of the American buffalo is essentially the American bison is essentially a situation caused by the tragedy of the commons where nobody owned all the bison and you're basically racing with other people to try and get these resources before they're all gone. Right, exactly. So let's get back to the movie a little bit. Um, one of the key things that I think the movie does in the third act, and Robert, this is the part that you really liked, was when Vinny was cross-examining all of these witnesses. And I, I have to wonder, why did the witnesses, why were they so adamant that these guys were the ones who did it? Because uh, Vinny demonstrates that they none of them had a good vantage point, none of them had a good view. One of them didn't even have decent enough eyesight to, to count the number of fingers that were being held up from 50 feet away. It Was there witness tampering or, or leading the witness by the law enforcement or the prosecutor that's being alluded to here that, um, you know, we don't really see, but it's, is, is it like, is it there in the movie or is this just three people who are trying to do good and they think they're being helpful? And then Vinny exposes them for, well, there's no way you could see through that. Oh, you, there's no way you could see that far away, you know, and, and all the things that he found and, and the grits thing where it takes 15 or to 20 minutes to make grits, unless the laws of physics are different in your kitchen. This would be, it let just some good dialogue. I don't know how realistic all that cross was, but it was it was a lot of fun to watch. What did you think, Patrick? How realistic was all that? I mean, I actually think I thought that the cross examination was pretty realistic. And in fact, I sent Daniel a article this morning about how um, Merrick Garland used the example. He actually cited my cousin Vinny in a case in a decision just recently here. Um, so I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, I'll put that link in the show notes page here about how Merrick Garland used that. So the cross-examination was pretty good. And I could go on a big tangent about what you want to do on cross-examination because, and I believe this was addressed in the film by one of the accused and it wasn't the karate kid. It was the other one, but he was saying that cross-examination is an art. You know, when, when you're doing direct examination, you really want your witness to be telling the story. You want your theory of the case to be coming out through your witness. And in a lot of ways, the art of trying a case is trying to establish the narrative. And frankly, if I could be so bold, I feel like um, my strength as an attorney is that I'm a storyteller. Um, I did creative writing in undergrad. 
So my favorite part of being a lawyer is trying to do that storytelling element. When you have a witness on direct examination, you are having them, the focus is on them. The jury should be paying attention to them. You want everyone to be looking at them. They're establishing the narrative. And that's why the plaintiff will go first, because usually the plaintiff has the burden of establishing the narrative. So the prosecution will go first. They put their witnesses up. And you can see this in the movie is that they are trying to establish the narrative of the case. Um, when you're on cross-examination, you want the attention to be on you as the attorney. So you have, there's the direct examination by the opposing side. Then you go up to cross-examine the witness. They're usually not your witness. Um, you are trying to elicit things from them. You're trying to extract things from them. So there's, there is a, and this is alluded to in the film too, is that you want to know the answers to the questions that you're asking. And it, it is a Socratic examination of whoever is on the witness stand. So you want to walk them into logical traps. And specifically, as it happens in this, in this movie, My Cousin Vinny, is that Vinny wants to go in and nail down this timeline of how long it takes to cook grits. You have to logically walk them into a trap and illustrate why they are wrong and why what they testified to on direct examination cannot possibly be true. And what you do with that is that you get them to agree to things along the way. And then all of a sudden, like, so you, you try and be a friend to them and act like you are leading them in a path that is advantageous to themselves, get them to agree to every step along the way, and then bam, hit them with something that everything they agreed to leading up to this, well, they have to agree to this or else they look foolish as hell. And so that's what he does in this case. And, oh, well, you know, you're, you're a self-respecting Southerner, right? You like to cook, correct? Um, and, and you take pride in your grits, don't you? Yeah. So, well, doesn't it take, uh, you know, 15 minutes to cook grits? You know, he really nails them down on that. And in this time span, you couldn't possibly have noticed this. So were you lying when you gave your testimony on direct or are you lying right now to me? And I, it's masterfully done. I think there are other things that, you know, I'll address in, in the next few minutes about how this movie gets things wrong. But in this specific case, um, I mean, it was good enough for Merrick Garland to cite in one of his decisions. Yeah, I okay. think that this was an interesting situation because I think, um, you know, eyewitnesses, if you if you look at any like psychological studies, they're notoriously terrible at recalling things. And the weight that seems to be given them, at least in media tropes and, and Hollywood movies and TV shows is it's almost like sacrosanct that you've got an eyewitness. But I mean, they're wrong like so much of the time. Uh, like over half the time, I, I think the, the numbers are probably like 70 to 80 percent of the time that they're wrong about very, very specific, uh, you know, elements of the details. Um, and in this case with uh, the grits, I wouldn't be surprised if um, the guy making the grits truly believed it was five minutes had elapsed and he just didn't think about it. Because, I mean, how many times are you caught in doing something and you're focused on it and all of a sudden it's an hour later or whatever? You know, the, the concept of time uh, to borrow from So I Married an Axe Murderer, you know, the guy's like flying by instruments. He has no concept of time. People are like that. They don't have a concept of time uh, when it comes down to it, unless you're like actually remembering looking at a clock and, and logging it in your head somehow. Um, so it's almost like he was revealing to the witness. Well, yeah, you're, you're actually wrong, whether you think you are or you thought you were or not. I'm demonstrating to you that you are. So it's, it's like a revealed discovering that he's wrong. Um, so I, I think that's a little bit different than are you lying now or, or are you lying then? It's more of like, you know, if we really take this apart, here's what really happened. 
I, I think you're right too, but I think there's also an inclination on behalf of the witnesses that they feel like they, it's, it's the same thing with juries, right? I mean, they feel like they want to help with the case and they feel like they have something to say. Um, they really are convinced that they're right. Um, but yeah, so I, I think you are right. Yeah, it, it's not necessarily a nefarious intent on behalf of the witness. Um, it, it's it's a helpfulness that they want to have. But as an attorney, you're really trying to directly to the root attack their credibility. So are you lying now or were you lying then? I mean, you really want to make it black and white for the jury. And in the jury sense, too, they really want to feel like they're helping. Um, but from the witness's standpoint, I mean, I took a wrongful convictions class with the director of the Minnesota Innocence Project. And eyewitness identifications are like 70 to 80% of the things that are overturned. They're so, like uh, like Robert was saying, they're so unreliable. It, it's just ridiculous. The, the mind and the way that memory works is that it's not finite. It's not determinate. You can't, I mean, it changes and it's so susceptible to suggestion too. Yeah, the famous study that I remember was that the subjects are told to watch this video and count the number of times like a ball is juggled or bounces. And the the um, demonstrators like have a gorilla, a guy in a gorilla suit, like walk through the scene. And then they ask the subjects later, like how many times did the ball bounce? Oh, which direction did the gorilla walk in from? What? What gorilla? No one saw the gorilla. Yeah, so these witnesses in this film seem weak to me but i don't know i mean maybe on first uh, firstly you know talking to them they seem stronger it seems to me that if i was the prosecutor though i would want to present my strongest case like my ironclad case you don't want to have too many witnesses and then maybe some of these witnesses are weak i don't know if it's a question of you know quality over quantity or sometimes you just want to barrage them with quantity but every witness every further witness you add you're just allowing the defense to poke more holes find more holes so would it be like the prosecutor is really responsible for finding these best witnesses, right? Because you don't want to just throw up some blind guy on the, the stand, but that's exactly what this prosecutor does in this film. But is that because that's all he has? Or is he just like negligent? Because it seems like Vinny just destroyed all the prosecutor's witnesses, like easily, which you would think that the prosecutor himself would investigate his own witnesses to make sure that they're going to be strong on the stand and hold up under cross. But it doesn't seem like it seems like it was more played up for the film in this case. What, what do you think about any of that, Patrick? So in this case, I would expect that the prosecutor only has two or three witnesses that actually saw the event. So he's going to bring all of them that he can. And if he has a witness that can't see very well, well, oh, well. You know, that's all I have. I'm going to put him up on the stand. And on some level, I would like to believe that prosecutors believe in the process of trying a case. Speaking of process, my one last thing to talk about in this movie that I thought was absolutely ridiculous. When I saw this, it was my one thing. And I was like, bull fucking shit. Screw you and the horse you rode in on. So the prosecutor produces this surprise scientific evidence guy, this witness, who testifies to the tire tracks and that they match the you know car and whatever. And Vinny objects and he says, hey, I haven't had time to vet this guy, to produce my own witness, to even examine the veracity of his claims. I, I need some kind of you know alert, like warning ahead of time. And you're just springing this on me. You can't just allow this right now. There's no way. And the court and the judge is just like, all right, I allow it. Tough shit. How, what kind of, is this real? 
Can the judge just be like, eh, I don't care. Vinny or Gallo or whatever his name is, um, he has, in the beginning, his girlfriend finds out that, okay, you're entitled to discovery. There's these things you have to know. Okay, in the real world, before you go to trial, there are no surprises at trial. So as it as it goes to the the actual uh, the movie, the timeline as it takes place in this film is so so advanced because unless your client makes a speedy trial demand, which in in which case a speedy trial could take place within a certain time limit, like thirty days, but these trials these criminal cases take place over the span of months and months and years. So you're not years, but sometimes years. But you're you're trying to really make all these motions and nail down the testimony and get everything so there are no surprises at trial. And before trial happens, you're supposed to submit a witness list where you describe, you know, you you ha- you list all your witnesses and you roughly describe what they're going to testify to. Sometimes you have depositions and civil cases, you have depositions. And so you know exactly what's going to take place at trial. If you're going to qualify an expert witness, they have to qualify under the Daubert standard. There are going to be motions and hearings leading up to the trial that adjudicate what you can talk about at trial, what phrases you can use at trial and talk to the jury about all these different things so sorry about being so long-winded during this episode but there really is a lot to this there really is and in some ways this movie gets it right and in some ways it gets it wrong all right so that's so quite- in other words wait 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 you never actually answered the question and all that yes. you never actually said was the judge in the right to allow the witness and oh shit, I forgot what I was going to say. Deny the objection that Vinny had no. raised, which was very, very cogent. Yeah. And is it just his discretion? Like, and there's nothing Vinny can do about it to allow an expert witness that is at the last prize witness. Up? Yeah. Hell no, that's not allowable. This needs to be put on the witness list before trial. I mean, everything is laid out before trial. There are no surprises ever. You have your witness list you even submit the exact jury instructions that the jury is going to look at and contemplate while they're trying to determine the verdict. And the prosecution and the defense has to agree on a set of jury instructions. So absolutely not. That is not allowable. All right. Okay. So, so let's assume that that it was allowable and, and the prosecutor seemed to think it was like some special situation. That's why he was all sm- smarmy about it on the phone with before. But um I when I was watching this, I'm like, okay, Vinny had just destroyed all the eyewitness testimony on cross. And now we have this very circumstantial evidence of tire marks that happen to be the most popular tire and the most popular size. So that alone wouldn't be significant in you'd you'd have that um was it the reasonable doubt? Yeah. So very much in play there. Yeah. You would. I mean, um, there's a lot to be said about the reasonable doubt standard, but it it really is a high bar for the prosecution. And at least in Wisconsin, a lot of I always say that I'm I'm framing it in terms of what I know, but I would assume it's the same for a lot of states. But the jury has to unanimously agree on a verdict. It you you would think that oh, all it takes is one juror to say no and to nullify. Uh, well, I've learned that the jury has to unanimously vote guilty or not guilty. If you have a disagreement among jurors about guilty or not guilty, then it's a hung jury and you have a mistrial and then you have a new trial. Um, so this this expert witness yeah. provides his testimony and then Marissa Tomei in this kind of dramatic moment and scene comes up and provides testimony that completely destroys the expert witness's testimony. The FBI guys, right? Right. FBI investigator or yeah right and her testimony is so convincing that the even the prosecutor's like 
uh, yeah, I guess my case is totally screwed. I'm dropping all the charges. Is that realistic in any way that no. the prosecutor would ever go, eh, I give up then? No, because again, there would be no surprises. So because so, so, so Marissa Tomei wouldn't be allowed to, to testify either? No, nope. Um, no, probably not. You can't have a surprise expert witness. That just wouldn't happen. And then you wouldn't have a surprise rebuttal witness. So in some ways, I mean, in terms of procedure, they really get right. Like, oh, yeah, we're going to have a preliminary hearing for our clients. And then, um, you know, all, all this procedure and all the, the unique nuances of different counties and how they want to do their procedure. But on another level, there are certain things that are very unrealistic. So but for the sake of the movie, they do allow the FBI surprise witness and the surprise rebuttal from Marissa yeah. Tomei's character. Um, now, one question I have, and then we can start to wrap this up is Marissa Tomei is the mechanic, right? She's the one who knows this stuff. So why, how does Vinny, by looking at the two pictures, how does that spark in him? Does he know about the positronic transmission and that the tire marks should be different? Yeah, no kidding. I had that same question. I was like, what? Yeah. How does he know that? No idea. I have no idea. Yeah. Maybe it's an inclination or maybe he does. I mean, I would think that he would have to know. Even though he's not, he's a lawyer. He's not a mechanic. Right. And that's kind of the problem that you face too. being a lawyer is that you have to tell your story through your witnesses and your argumentation is limited only to your closing argument. That's why it's I mean, so in your and that's why. So when Vinny gets up and he I mean, aptly, he says everything that he just said is bullshit. Thank you. That's his that's his uh, opening argument for the trial. Well, rightly so, the prosecution objects because that's all argument except for the thank you part. You can't argue during your close or during your opening statement. You can't argue during your direct examination or your cross. I mean, on cross, you can kind of argue with actually, I don't know, strike that maybe. Um, I, I love the point where he says, strike everything but the thank you and right, exactly. disregard that you heard that. How, yeah. did, how is that even a thing? How can you unhear something? Right. I mean, that is a mistrial in of itself. I mean, there's so many things that are a mistrial. If so, if and that's ineffective assistance of counsel at the very beginning, if Vinny comes up and all he says is everything you just heard is bullshit. Thank you. That is grounds for appeal. So it's not like these guys are actually facing the death penalty because in order to actually execute someone, there are mandatory appeals that need to happen before you can execute there's like two or three of them and ineffective assistance of counsel bam right there the fact that he messed up the preliminary hearing is ineffective assistance of counsel the fact that he screwed up the opening statement that is a mistrial bam right there in reality so yeah i, mean, I think we have to give it some creative license because it's not a documentary it's a comedy film right yeah so i i don't know i mean yeah i i so I, I mean, in terms of the mechanics of how this actually is working, these are things I've learned in the last two or three months as I've started practice. And um, I haven't had a chance to really talk about them on my own podcast. So I'm, I'm leaping at the opportunity. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I apologize. But uh... <laughs> no, it's cool, man. Now, for the sake of the movie, I do think it makes sense for the prosecutor to be like, well, it's been revealed to everyone here that the prosecution's case is no good. Like it's obvious at this point so for him to drop the charges at that point it makes sense in the movie whether right. that would happen in real life or not i don't know but yeah I, I don't think if i was in the prosecutor's shoes in real life i i would still keep going and take it to let the jury decide i would too i mean you you kind of have to interesting but i even never though, even though it's obvious to you at that point yeah 
Yeah, you you got to see it through. Interesting. Well, let's see the rest of this uh, episode through. Let's get into the final summary and review. Pat, you know how this goes. Uh, But uh, Robert, why don't you go first, then we'll go to Pat. And then Pat, you can do your plugs, and then I'll do mine, and then we'll end the show here. Okay, well, this movie has a lot of good things to recommend and a lot of not so good, in my opinion. I I think I'll be probably the lowest score here tonight, which is not a problem and not not a surprise. This is pretty far for the course. Anyway, this movie seems is definitely shows its age. It shows a lot of like old Hollywood tropes, and like I said earlier, with the, uh, the just the really dumb dialogue that is necessary in order for the movie to happen, which is just kind of strikes me as a little bit lazy writing. But um, the movie really comes alive in the uh, under in the cross examination stages, where Vinny really comes alive as a lawyer and really takes down you know the witnesses. And does it in a fun way, really fun way that um, is a joy for the audience to watch. Um, and I can see why this movie gets a lot of positive reviews for that, because it really ends strongly. The The first two thirds, uh, you know, of a lot of the pratfalls and the the tropes of the, the guy just can't he can't catch a break when he's trying to get some sleep. And so he's sleeping through court. And eh, it just kind of wore a little thin for me. But when Vinny becomes, you know, he really gets into his own uh, when he's uh, examining a witness. So for that alone, I think this movie is recommendable. Uh, Tomei is good. I can see why she probably got the Best Supporting Actress nomination. I don't know. Did she win? I'm not sure. I forget. She won. Yes. Okay. So she won. I don't know if she should have won, but I don't know what she was up against. Anyway, who cares about the Oscars? Um, Otherwise... Uh, yeah, it's 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 an old '90s movie. I don't know what else to say. It's uh, I, I would say this is like a six point two. That's that's my that's my rating. Six point two. It, it's positive, but it's not like I mean we've we've we spent the the past hour and a half probably picking it apart. So yeah, super long episode here. So six point two for Robert. How about you, Pat? Well, I'm gonna give it a black and gold throwback. I'm always gonna be bringing that back, but I'll give it maybe a seven point five. Uh, maybe a little higher. I think that it it really gets some things right that maybe other uh, legal dramas or comedies, I suppose you would say, don't get right. Um, that being said, it it is better than Liar Liar in terms of accuracy. It really blows it out of the water, even though I have quibbles with it. Um, but it was really funny. I mean, and it was it was an entertaining film to watch from start to finish. So I'll give it a seven and a half, maybe an eight. Wow, that's a pretty big swing. Yeah. All right. Well, I know Robert doesn't like the uh, the old style tropes in this or the clever writing where there's a miscommunication about what the subject matter is. And both parties are speaking in such a way to where it has double double meaning. And I found that to be very, very insightful and excellent writing, not lazy writing. Um, also, I like that all of the elements that are later revealed in the uh, cross are brought up uh, even subtly in the the first third and and uh, part of the film because you you see they they go and have breakfast and they learn about how long it takes to cook grits they get stuck in the mud and they see the one tire spin and the other one not moving at all um they see the uh the old lady and she he goes and visits her and she can't see and then what's that brown stuff on the window that that guy can't see out the window so all of these things kind of get kind of thrown in there early on and then you kind of get the payoff at the end and i think that that's well done you don't see a lot of that in um in movies anymore i think it's more i don't know like how many genders can you have in a movie and and that's what sells tickets these days right so i'm gonna go with an 8.0 on this thing so i'm right there with patrick we're gonna bring that average up there robert on this episode of the last nighters episode 62 did i say is that what we're on 62 sounds about right yeah last slash 62 so robert next week 
Did I sub? Did you subconsciously plant that in my mind? That's why I gave it a six point two because it's episode sixty two. So I, I may have. You did you son of a bitch? I may have. So next week, Robert, we're gonna um, for St. Patrick's Day, we're going to have a Texan on to talk about a Chinese movie about the Japanese um, uh, occupation of China. Well, who better to have on? That sounds makes sense to me. Yes, yeah, so we're gonna do Ip Man, the Donnie Yen movie, where he's fighting off like twenty five guys at a time. It's pretty uh, pretty stellar uh, action flick. Points and- for realism. Well, not so much on the realism, but it is pretty awesome. And so we're going to have the anarchist Luke Tatum of the Culture of Peace podcast join us for that episode next week. So I'm really looking forward to that. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And I think we can wind this one down here. So if you are a listener and you want to get some of our pre-show and post-show content, hit us up at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. And you can also find this episode on the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Our guest has been Patrick McFarlane of the Liberty Weekly Podcast. And actually, McFarlane, we should have had you on next week for St. Patty's Day. Well, maybe, maybe next year, buddy. We'll do, we'll do another uh, more appropriately uh, titled film for next St. Patrick's Day. But uh, people can find your work at libertyweekly.net. Uh, we were a guest on your show several times. One was for um, talking about the Larkin Rose Candles in the Dark event. I think that's libertyweekly.net slash 26. And then we also did the Wild Wild Country series with you, and that was libertyweekly.net slash WWC. So thank you so much for being our guest. Uh, any final word for the audience? Yeah, I mean, other than that, just uh, checking out my content at libertyweekly.net. So I was a good time to spend with you guys. And I, you know, it's been two years now that we've been doing this together. I'm hoping to make it many, many more. So thanks for having me back on the show, guys. All right. Glad thank to you. have you, buddy. And we will do some of the uh, Patreon bonus content uh, after this. So thank you guys, everyone. Good night from last night. In 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.